Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, captivating and revealing interviews with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They regale you with memorable and entertaining stories, some hilarious, some emotional, but all of them well worth your time. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and the TuneIn app. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by the Polina Market, Chicago's premier purveyors of fine meats and so much more since 1949. Find them at PolinaMarket.com. This week we feature longtime Major League pitcher and one of the star commentators of MLB Tonight, Dan Plesak. When I started doing Cubs pre and post game show, uh, the then director of, of programming there, Joe Riley, gave me the greatest advice ever. I want the people at home to see the guy that sat there, watched the game from the bullpen at Wrigley. The jokes, what was funny? What were you talking about? Why were you talking about it? What players did you like? Why did you like him? And George, that was the best advice that I was ever given. 18 years as a relief pitcher and nearly as long as an analyst, a very popular one at that. Dan Plesak parlayed his career on the mound to one in the studio that brought a personality out even he didn't know existed. And if he isn't having a blast on the set of MLB tonight, he's involved in horse racing, something a number of ex-athletes are into, including Blackhawks analyst Eddie Olchek. So, Dan Plesak, tell me a story I don't know. George, growing up in the Chicago area, I was born and raised in Gary, Indiana. And 
I was borderline between being a Cubs and a White Sox fan, but leaned more towards being a Cub fan because the games were on WGN. You could come home from school and listen to Jack Brickhouse, the days of Sano, Kessinger, Beckert, Banks, infield, third to first. And so you would rush home from school to watch a Cub game. And I remember I never had a chance to play in Wrigley Field early on in my career. I played with the Milwaukee Brewers because the Brewers then were in the American League East. So my first interaction of Wrigley Field was an exhibition game before the season started in like 1989. So fast forward to the winter of 1992. I'm a free agent for the first time. And I'm pretty much signed, sealed, and delivered. I'm either going to sign with the Cincinnati Reds or the Toronto Blue Jays. Then GM Larry Hines calls and says to me, you know, um, would you be interested in possibly going and potentially signing with the Cubs? And I remember telling Larry Hines, I was like, you know, I don't know. Like, I'm pretty much, I was done deal. I was going to sign with the Blue Jays. So make a long story short. I signed with the Cubs. I signed a two-year deal. And I remember opening day, listening to Wayne Mesmer sing the national anthem. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light What so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming and the, bleacher, uh, the bleacher bombs. I remember just thinking how cool it was in all the years of watching games when home runs would be hit and the fans would catch it and throw the ball back into the field. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. That wasn't until it happened to me. So it was a cool, I remember this, it was a kind of a cool early season game. We were playing the Atlanta Braves and I was with the Cubs and Fred McGriff was hitting for the Braves. Pretty close game in the seventh inning. I come in and the wind was blowing in and I remember thinking, boy, it's going to be really hard to hit one out of this ballpark today. So I fell behind two balls in one strike, threw a fastball down out over the plate, and the crime dog hits a missile into left center field for a home run about seven rows deep into the left center field bleachers. And I see the ball go out. I put my head down, and you don't want to look out. And you look out there, and you see a fan throw the ball back in. He almost throws the ball all the way in on a fly. It almost hit Sean Dunstan. <laughs> And it rolled right in front of the mound. So I, I'm a little angered. I bend down to go pick up the ball. And it's a rubber-coated ball. They didn't even throw back the original ball. I remember picking the ball up, looking at it. It was like one of those beat-up old rubber balls in the backyard. And I threw it in by the dugout to the ball guy. you know. And I thought to myself, I never in a million years ever assumed that a home run, that the fan would throw back a ball that wasn't the actual ball. So... That was my first education into the bleacher bums is be careful because if you give one up, they're going to throw it back, but they may not throw the right ball back. Hey, that had to be an insult to you. First of all, the ball is rolling to you. Second of all, it isn't the same ball. It was. And, and, and I remember I could see it like it was yesterday, this long arc throw. And I saw the ball coming in and I almost wanted to scream to Sean Dunstan like, hey, look out. You hear this roar from the fans and the ball landed just on the outfield grass right before shortstop it hit the dirt and it rolled almost George literally five feet from the mound and I went to pick it up and as angry as I was I had to chuckle because I got played it wasn't the real ball <laughs> you know I want to start with the present and MLB tonight where you've been a fixture now since 2009 
Tell me if I'm wrong, but it appears that you not only enjoy it, Dan, you have a great deal of fun doing it. George, I do. The most difficult thing for me, when I left Comcast Chicago, I was doing Cubs pre and post game for the better part of four seasons. The MLB Network started, they flew me out for an audition, and all of a sudden my life changed. Um, I moved out to New Jersey, and the most difficult thing that I had to come to grips with was to let my personality come out. Um, I was on a national level, and it was, it was rather intimidating working with Harold Reynolds and John Smoltz, Pedro Martinez, Jim Tomey, Joe McGrain, Matt Baskersian, and I really wasn't that well-known. Like in the Midwest area, I was in Chicago, Milwaukee, uh, Cubs pre and post game, great. But on the national level, I wasn't that well-known. And I had a really difficult time the first two years understanding that the viewer at home, it doesn't always have to be about X's and O's. It has to be that I want to explain something that a pitcher does. You can be very scientific. You can talk X's and O's and you can talk about the inverted W and landing and throw across your body. But the average fan at home really doesn't understand what that info is. And I try to tell myself every day that I'm on the air that if I'm explaining something, I'm explaining it to my mom at home that's listening. She doesn't understand the mechanics of pitching. But if I can provide her of something that I'm watching and describing and my mom can understand it, or my brother can understand it, and they can go, wow, I really learned something. And along the way, do it with a smile on your face. The toughest thing for me, George, was I felt like for a while that you, I didn't want to come across as a goofball. I wanted to come across as when something was funny, have a great time with it. Swing two breaking ball. Jerry Blevins throw it. Now you don't sit on the breaking ball. You look fastball. Fastball, adjust. lock him up, Blevins. Adjust. Let's see if you can lock him up with a fastball. Ah! I love it when I'm right. <laughs> I hate you. Oh! Hey, That's gotta, why we do this. We got to bring that back pitch by oh, pitch. Jerry Blevins. <laughs> I love you, Jerry Blevins. <laughs> <laughs> I'm passionate about it. When I started doing Cubs pre and post game show, uh, the then director of, of programming there, Joe Riley, gave me the greatest advice ever. He said to me, you know, the first year I was doing the Cubs pre and post game, he goes, you know, I, I, need, to, I need to loosen up. I want you to pretend you're sitting down in the bullpen and you're watching a game and you're relaying it to the guys. Like, I want, I want the people at home to see the guy that sat there watch the game from the bullpen at Wrigley. The jokes, what was funny? What were you talking about? Why were you talking about it? What players did you like? Why did you like them? And George, that was the best advice that I was ever given. And, and after about a year at MLB Network, I, I started to go like, okay, I have to do that. I have to do what Joe Riley told me to do. I have to bring the game to people at home through the way I see it. So in other words, this personality was always there. You just didn't know it? Yes. He, he was there. He was there. And anybody that played with me in any of the stops in Milwaukee, Chicago, Toronto, Arizona, Pittsburgh, will tell you, what a funny guy. He told jokes and he had a great time. But I, I, that, that part of me didn't come out in TV for a couple of seasons because I wasn't comfortable being that guy in front of the camera. 
I'll bet there are very few people who know this, but you didn't serve a single day on the disabled list during your 18-year big league career, which I find pretty amazing. However, Dan, you were on the DL during your stint with MLB tonight. So tell me a story. I don't know what happened the night you returned. Oh, well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what happened the night I returned. Of all things, George, I fell and broke my hip playing golf. Yes. I was playing golf in Westchester, New York. It was the first hole. It was a par five. I hit a great drive, and my second shot was kind of – I was on a slant of a hill. I take a swing, and we were the first group out in the morning. I take a swing. My back foot gives out, and I'm going to fall backwards. I'm going to fall back and land on my can, or I'm going to fall backwards on a hill. I try to catch my balance. My feet get tangled. I fall right down on my left knee, flip over, get up, and I am covered in dirt. I fell in kind of a mud, grassy area. I got up and I started walking and I was like, wow, I have never felt this kind of pain in my life. And I remember walking up to the hole and the three guys I were playing with said, well, you know, what the hell happened to you? I said, you're not going to believe this, but I fell. I said, man, I will never again ever give anybody a hard time about a quad strain because I said, I think I pulled a quad muscle. This thing's killing me. We were walking, playing with caddies. I made it through 18 holes, and on the way home, George, the Yankees had a day off that day, and I was going to be playing at my club in North New Jersey, Upper Montclair Country Club. I drove to my club, pulled in, couldn't get out of my car. I drove home. I slept for a couple hours, got up. I could not put any pressure on my leg at all to walk. So I'm like, what do I do? I had no crutches in the house. I grabbed a Cubs team sign bat and a 1988 all-star game signed bat. I used those two bats as my crutches to get in my car. I walked into the hospital. They put me in a wheelchair. I handed the, the bats to the woman at the reception. I said, I want these back. I need these back. They wheeled me in. They took x-rays. I ended up having two broken bones in my hip. The next day, I went to NYU Langone, had massive surgery on my hip. I had pins, plates, and metal put into my hip. I got both of the bats back. That was the only time, George, I was ever on the DL. Never while playing, but I was while broadcasting. And so what happens the night you come back to the set? They give me all kinds of ribbing. Tell me it's true. Tell me it's true. So fired up to have you back. The network hasn't been the same right there. He's back, people. Dan Plezak is back. They said it would be a lot of hard work. Rocking it, baby! They said <laughs> it wouldn't be easy. I'm running out of birds, but you get it. I know that you hated being on the DL. So glad you're back. Whoa! Zach is back! Everyone loves Please Zach. Chicka bow bow, chicka bow bow, chicka bow bow. Oh, man. Love. I'm, I'm telling you, you guys. You made it. You managed it. I made it. You left for MLB in 2008. You could have come back to the Cubs in 2009 to replace Bob Brenly, but you turned it down. Tell me a story. I don't know why. George, that was the toughest decision that I've probably made post-baseball. Um, I was in year one of a five-year deal with MLB Network. Uh, Bob Brenly unexpectedly left Chicago for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Um, I received a call from the Cubs a couple of days later. So I flew out on Wednesday, spent all day Thursday in the morning on Friday, flew out over here at like noon, landed back at, at Liberty National in Newark and was on at six o'clock. Um, at 530, 
my cell phone rang and it was Tony Petiti, who was the CEO of MLB Network, who was, who was at one time the deputy commissioner of baseball under Rob Manfred. He called me. I didn't answer the phone. I was getting makeup. The message was simple. Call me ASAP. And I'm like, okay. I, I called him. And I said, hey, Tony, how you doing? He goes, good. He goes, uh, I know it's real. You know it's real. I don't want to lose you. Uh, you've been here since the beginning. I don't know what they're offering. Um, let's tear your deal up, redo it. This is the number I can do. I can do it for five years guaranteed. And basically, George, it was something that, that I just couldn't turn it down. They I, made I you an offer you couldn't refuse. Well, made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And there was, I, I think that the scary part of it is, since I'm giving full disclosure, the scary part at that time was the Cubs TV rights were in flux. Their, their contract was ending with Comcast and with WGN. And they weren't sure how, who, and when the broadcasters were going to be paid. And there was no way at that time that I could leave five years guaranteed contract at MLB for something I really wanted at the time, but I could only get the security of two years and some option years afterwards. And that would be decided on however the rights, because the Cubs went there for a couple of years where there were some games on ABC seven, there were some on Comcast, there were some on WGN and all those rights were ending. And there was talk of the Cubs starting their own network. There are a couple of, iconic places to work and <sighs> Wrigley Field is one of those places and I didn't grow up a Cub fan um, I grew up a White Sox fan uh, born in Gary Indiana my first game I ever went to as a kid I went to a White Sox Oakland A's game and all I remember were the handlebar mustaches Raleigh Fingers Sal Bando Gene Tennis Joe Rudy and Bill Melton was my favorite player as a kid and I was all everything White Sox. In my neighborhood where I grew up in Gary, you were one or the other. You were either a Cub fan or a White Sox fan. And I was all things White Sox. I was Bill Melton, Harold Baines, Carlton Fisk, Ron Kittle. You name it, I was all things White Sox. I signed with the Cubs as a free agent in 1993. And I got goosebumps every day for two years because I didn't think I would like it because I was programmed not to like the Cubs as a kid. And playing for the Cubs, I didn't realize what a special place it was to play until I played there and until I left. The break-even pitch. Struck him out. And Plezak comes in to fan Castilla. He wants that baseball from Mark Perrin, and he is some kind of fired up. I've done a lot of cool things, but I was working for MLB Network in October of 2016, they sent Robert Flores and I to Wrigley to cover the National League Championship Series against the Dodgers. And I remember standing by Chicago's finest on two horses above the left field foul pole because they wouldn't let us have our set on the field. So we were doing a live hit, Robert Flores and I, from the left field. And with two outs, it was a ground ball hit, double play, game over. The Cubs were going to the World Series. And I remember standing, looking at that field from the left field foul line, looking down. I was standing right next to the foul pole, next to two Chicago police officers on their horse. And the echo of the fans singing, Go Cubs Go. To this day, it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And it, it 
it almost like if you love baseball, like I do, there are these moments that that grab you and make you understand one, why you fell in love with the sport, two, why you never stop loving it, and three, it made me understand the generations of Cub fans. You, you can't understand it, and I couldn't have understood it until I played there in 1993 and 94 of the generations of frustration and Bartman and disappointments and getting close and 69, the black cat, Shea Stadium, all the things wrapped up in one. To see that double play turn and that the singing of Go Cubs Go was one of the most moving experiences in my life because I don't think I would have fully understand the magnitude of that if I didn't play for the Cubs and understand what that meant to so many people to finally get a chance, fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and grandmothers and sons and daughters to actually see the Cubs in a World Series. It was, it was one of the most amazing nights ever for me on the corner of Clark and Addison. You know, it's funny because I'm going to relate a story exactly, just about exactly the same because I was a reporter then and they allowed us on the field. I don't know, it was maybe 10, 12 minutes after it was done. So I'm walking out to center field and there's this celebration and I stopped dead in my tracks, Dan, because I understand I have been to the Chicago, the old Chicago stadium when it was noisy and raucous to the United Center when it was the same thing when Paul Canerco hit the Grand Slam of the World Series. Uh, at uh, what was then U.S. Cellular Field. Never had I heard a crowd louder than the night the Cubs won the pennant. Now that's outside. I said to myself, wow, I didn't realize it could get this loud. And it was an amazing night for me as it was for you in just hearing all these people and how loud they could be on the field. I finally understood what it was like for a player maybe in a great play to hear the crowd. It was amazing. George, that, that is exactly the feeling that you get when you get the last out of the ninth inning at home in a big game, whether it's in Milwaukee or wherever, and you hear that rush and that roar. And it is, that night was the most magical night that I could ever remember in baseball. And I, I'd even throw a pitch. I had no skin in the game, being a former Cub for two years, that, that night to me was, it was magical. And, and I, I think about that night and it's just, it's one of the cool things. Like as a fan growing up, the White Sox finally win a world series. And as a guy who pitched for the Cubs, they final, finally win a world series. What was that like for you personally? I, I think the coolest part was my family, um, my dad, my grandfather, all of my cousins, diehard White Sox fans. And in 2005, I remember my uncles and everyone just like they were on cloud nine. And this was the first time in a while that the White Sox, you know, when they had the parade, the World Series parade, that it, it was the one, it was like the light was finally shining on the South side. And the Cubs were an easy organization to like and to love. Day games, the whole nine yards. And the White Sox were always kind of the forgotten, the forgotten team in Chicago. And it was so cool to see them finally get their due. 
Tying run at second, two out. Palmero over the head of Jenks. Uribe charges, throws out, and the White Sox have won the World Series. And then when the Cubs won that in 2016, the coolest part for me was when you grow up in the Midwest like I did and I was working here in the Northeast, people don't understand the magnitude of how powerful that Cub brand is. The Cubs are the Yankees of the Midwest. The Cubs are the Dodgers of the West. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by the Polina Market. And with the grilling season upon us, you have no excuse not to shop there. It's been Chicago's premier market for the finest meats and more since 1949. And it's gotten bigger and better. How about chicken and fish in your basket to go along with their absolutely mouth-watering steaks such as the tomahawk, porterhouse, and wagyu. And if you like brats and sausages, add that to your basket and head right to the grill. Then there's the vast frozen food section where everything is freshly made, including chicken pot pies, meatloaf, and pulled pork. Besides the addition of fresh seafood, the Polina Market is now serving sandwiches. It also has a solid array of wonderful wines and beers Plus, they've expanded again, making the in-store experience even more satisfying. Remember, you can still order online and you can have it shipped wherever you live. I've been shopping here for 37 years and with good reason. The Polina Market is as good as it gets and conveniently located at 3501 North Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. Check them out on their impressive website at polinamarket.com. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the free TuneIn app, and wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Dan Plezak on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. You know, most of the people that I have interviewed for this podcast, if not all of them, have a gift for Gab. And it's pretty clear, Dan, you have one as well. So tell me a story, whether you were a talker as a kid, and then you became an even better one as a big leaguer. You know, George, I, I have to say this. My mom, my, my rookie year in 1986, I was with the Milwaukee Brewers. And in the off season of 1986, you know, I, I never had braces as a kid and my front teeth were a little crooked, my four front teeth. And my mom said to me, you know what you should do? You should really get braces and get your teeth fixed because I really think that when you're done playing baseball, you're gonna have a career in broadcasting. And I remember I said, nah, broadcasting? I said, there's no way in hell I'm ever gonna be a broadcaster. She really I told said, you, you know that? What I'm gonna do? I'm gonna... Yes. So 1987, go to spring training, John Council, who is Craig Council's father, the manager of the Brewers. John Council was in charge of public relations for the Brewers. He came up to me and says, hey, I've, I've had the a crazy request. Would you be interested in being the spokesman for the state of Wisconsin Orthodontic Society? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, they're looking for somebody to be a spokesperson. <clears throat> what they would do is you'd get free orthodontics, but you'd have to do like some plugs, like some PSAs, maybe do some posters, do a couple of signings, go to a couple of offices, would you be willing to do it? And I thought, yeah, why not, right? So it's crazy that I ended up doing that, had braces put on my, in 1987, my second year in the big leagues, 
And if it wasn't for my mother telling me, like, you really need to get your teeth fixed because someday you're going to be on TV doing broadcasting, I would have never believed it. But that's a fact, and that's exactly what happened. But but I, I always enjoyed the media. I was never shy about talking about games like before and after a game. Um, but I really didn't think I would get into media, particularly when I was done after my 18 years, my last year with the Phillies in 2003. I was so done, so tired. I took a year off, and then Joe Riley from Comcast Sportsnet Chicago contacted me about doing Cubs pre and post game. It's a funny story, George. This is a fact. I was initially hired to do White Sox pre and post game, but Bill Melton, they were going to make some changes and decided that Bill Melton was going to do the pre and post game. And Brian McCray was going to do the Cubs pre and post game. And he ended up backing out of it. So instead of me doing the White Sox pre and post, I did the Cubs pre and post. That's how that happened. It was totally by accident. You know, not many pitchers are relievers their entire careers. And that was the case for you 18 years as a reliever. So tell me a story I don't know of it simply working out that way or whether your goal was to be a starter. George, I never pitched a game of relief in the minor leagues in, in all of my years. I made the team in 1986 with Milwaukee. George Bamberger was the manager. I made the team as the fifth starter. We started the month of April and... On opening day, we opened up my first day in the big leagues. I'll never forget it. We opened up against the White Sox. And I remember because Mike Ditka threw out the first pitch because the Bears had just won the Super Bowl in January. (laughs) Um, They tell me that they're going to keep me in the bullpen for the first two weeks because we had every off day. Every Tuesday was every Monday was a day off. So we played Monday in Old Comiskey. We're off Tuesday. Played Wednesday and Thursday in Comiskey. Went to New York Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I warmed up on opening day. Teddy Hager was the winning pitcher. We were up by quite a few runs. I got up to get up to maybe pitch. Nervous as hell, didn't get in. Day off on Tuesday, didn't pitch Wednesday or Thursday. We went to New York on Friday. Played the Yankees on Friday night. I got in my first big league game. Bases loaded, one out, seventh inning, struck out Mike Pagliarulo. Went home five days later in the home opener. I pitched four scoreless innings. Sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. 12 up, 12 down against the Yankees. We scored two runs in the bottom of the ninth inning and won the game. After the game, I pitched four innings in relief. I walk in after the game. I'm feeling good about myself. Like, okay, I'm stretched out now. George Bamberger calls me in the office and he sits me down. He says, Kit, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to be our Dave Rigetti. We're going to keep you in the bullpen. I want you to forget about that changeup. I want you to use fastball, slider. We're going to keep you in the bullpen the rest of the year. I'm going to take care of you. I won't pitch you two, three days in a row. And I remember George walking out of that office devastated. I didn't want to be a reliever. Nobody did then. And I will say this. George Bamberger made my career. He took care of me my rookie year. Didn't overwork me, didn't abuse me. And if it weren't for George Bamberger, I would have never played 18 years because there is no way in hell I would have lasted 18 years being a starting pitcher. It was the best thing, even though I thought it was the worst thing at the time. In April of 1986, I was disappointed. By May 1st, I was glad. A year later, I was in my first of three All-Star games. From the Milwaukee Brewers, pitcher Dan Plesak. I'm going to tell you something. I would have played one All-Star game if I was a starter. I was very lucky. So was there one particular game you remember 
as a reliever that just simply stands out? Yeah. Good and bad. You want, you want one of these? I'll take them both. I'll give you bad first. 1989, I was with Milwaukee. We were a game out of the, uh, you know, there was no wild card in 1989. You either won a division or you were going home. We were in Baltimore playing the Orioles, and we were a game and a half out of first place with about maybe five days left in the season. We have a one-run lead going into the ninth inning against the Orioles. Look up on the scoreboard. The Blue Jays were in first place. They had lost. So if we win this game, we're going to be a half a game out of first with a week to go. I came into a game, got the first two guys out of the inning. I walked a guy with two outs, and Mickey Tettleton came up. I threw a one-two hanging slider to Mickey Tettleton that he hit at about 590 feet, <laughs> right over the top of the fair pole or foul pole, whatever you want to call it. And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm going, please go foul, please go foul, please go foul. Couldn't tell if it was fair or foul. Derwood Merrill was the home plate umpire. He comes outside at first, but comes up, jumps outside a home plate, and he yells, foul, it's foul. And I'm like, took a deep breath because I wasn't sure, George, if it was fair or foul. If he had called it fair, I, I couldn't even complain. It was so high over the, over the foul pole that you couldn't tell if it was or wasn't. So I was like, whoo, did I dodge a bullet. Next pitch, George, threw another slider. He had about 450 feet in the right center field gap for a home run <laughs> to win the game. I felt like I dodged a bullet. And then, like, literally 30 seconds later, I threw up a two-run home run. We lose the game. We end up losing the East. I'm not saying we would have won the East, but if we were half a game back with a week to go, we'd have put more pressure on the Blue Jays. That's one I'll never forget. Maybe Good one that I'll never forget, 1988 All-Star Game. Um, when you play for Milwaukee, you're not on the Game of the Week on NBC. That was a big thing. Like, if you were the NBC Game of the Week, you were big, like Tony Kubek, Bob Costas. So, 1988, I make the All-Star team. And – we're playing three days against the Minnesota Twins, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, before the All-Star break. I come in and get three saves, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, against the Minnesota Twins. And the only reason I remember this, I had to fly in a charter with the Twins because Tom Kelly was the manager because the Twins won the World Series in 87. So the manager of the, you know, the 87 team is the manager of the All-Star team. So Tom Kelly and his coaching staff, I go on the Twins charter. Tom Kelly, the coaches... Gary Gaetti, Kirby Puckett, Frank Viola, we're all on a plane. I walk on a plane. I just saved three games. Paul Maurer and I walk onto the Twins charter to go to Cincinnati. And they're giving it a hard time. Boom, hey, you're on the wrong plane. What are you guys doing here? So we have a, we have a meeting the day of the All-Star game. Tom Kelly comes up to me. He says, listen, I know you're having a monster season. But he said, in all honesty, man, I'm going to let – I think I'm going to give the ball to Eck in the ninth. I said, hey, I had no problems. You can, that, that's great. So he goes, but I just want you to know, Daryl Strawberry's your guy. So if he's in, so be ready for the seventh inning on. Strawberry's in, he's your guy. I'm like, okay. So George, I'm warming up in the eighth inning. Two outs, Strawberry's on deck circle. Ground ball hit the Don Manningly, who doesn't boot it. He never boots the ball, right? Willie McGee, ground ball, Don Manningly on the turf in Cincinnati at Old Riverfront. Hits off the heel of his glove and bounces away. I come in the game to get Daryl Strawberry. All Tom Kelly told me when he handed me the ball was, listen, like I told you in the meeting, he's a real good low ball hitter. Just throw a buck. Just elevate your fastball. Nothing but heaters at the belt. You'll blow him away. I'm like, okay, you got it, Tom. 
George, the first two pitches were where I wasn't supposed to throw them. Knee high right down the middle where Strawberry likes him. He swifts strike one, whiffs strike two. And the next one I'm thinking, I want to throw this one like neck high as hard as I could throw it. And I think it was the hardest ball I threw in my 18 years. Threw a 97-mile-an-hour fastball at his chest. He swung at it and missed. And I remember walking off the field thinking, like, I made it, man. I arrived. Like, you know, that that's at the time when, when in 1988, when the All-Star game was on, people were watching. And so that was like, that was my coming out party, that that strikeout of Daryl Strawberry. And then the game's over. We're staying at the Weston in Cincinnati, the American League team, right? So my go-to was a club sandwich. So I order a club sandwich and comes with a club sandwich and another knock on the door. Here's your dessert. And I'm like, I didn't order dessert. They said it's on the house. I'm like, oh, okay. So I eat my club sandwich, George, my French fries, and I open it up, and it's a piece of strawberry shortcake. (laughs) And they wrote on it, strawberry dessert. Congrats. (laughs) You know, there's a rumor you gave up a homer to Prince Fielder, and it's still traveling. Oh, my gosh. Uh, George, (laughs) I'm telling you. Uh, So, yeah, I had a. It was it was an awful experience. 1992, playing the Tigers. Big Cecil comes up. I was a starter. I, that was like one of the few games I ever started in my career. And Rick Dempsey was a catcher. We went out for the top of the seventh. And he said, hey, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. He goes, hey, let's just keep pounding him inside. I go, man, we went in there the first two times. The only guy ever to hit a ball out of County Stadium, George. They had a big party out in the parking lot. Oh, Whoa, look at gone. this. Forget it. That might be out of the whole stadium. It may be. It is. It went out of everywhere, right on over the top. Cecil Fielder with a monstrous 41st home run. Cecil Fielder hit a ball completely out of County Stadium to me, off of me. The hardest part was when you go through ballparks for like the next decade, you know, like you're in batting practice and they're like, hey, everybody, this is Mel Allen. This week in baseball, y'all. And so it'd be on the scoreboard, right? And they'd show like the top 10 home runs of the past decade. And inevitably I'd be on the field stretching with the Blue Jays or the Diamondbacks and somebody'd be like, man, was that you? Did you give up that home run? To this day, George, the furthest ball by far I've ever given up out of County Stadium. The only one ever to be hitting out of County Stadium. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dog and a Chicago institution since 1893. It's grilling season, so what better than throwing some mouth-watering Vienna hot dogs and Polish sausages on the grill, then drag them through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and celery salt. I don't know about you, but I'm getting hungry. And look for the new spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available just about everywhere from restaurants, grocery stores, and the ballpark, socks and cubs, museums, and zoos. You can't miss them. Plus, you can purchase them online coast to coast at viennabeef.com and Amazon. Vienna also has farm acres, 
chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take the word from a guy who grew up on Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. Your nephew, Zach Plesak, pitches for the Indians and was involved in a situation in 2020 here in Chicago, caught having dinner out when COVID-19 rules prohibited him from doing so. And four days later, he compounded it by blaming the media. And then he followed that up with a not apology on Instagram. So tell me a story I don't know. How uncomfortable was that for you? And how did you handle it with him? Um, Zach made a mistake and I think he knew he made a mistake when he did it. Um, and he called me immediately after it happened and asked me what I should do. And I said, Hey, I think what you need to do is you need to, you just got to wear this one. You need to just stay quiet, whatever you have coming, you have coming. And I think what happened, George, as a lot of young players would do, they felt a little bit of embarrassment in a, in a, in a way to lash out. And he posted kind of a thing on Instagram saying that the media is bad. The media is awful. The media really is, is, is terrible, man. The, the media is terrible and they do some evil, evil things to create stories and to make things sound better, uh, makes things sound worse. And truthfully, I'm disgusted the way the media has handled this whole situation um, surrounding our team. I don't think he understood the magnitude of how that would be taken. And I've talked to him several times about it since. And he knows that what he did was a bonehead thing. But I think he was embarrassed. He was a little bit humiliated. Um, he didn't think that that story would take off and have legs like it did nationally. Um, and I think we all at that time understood that COVID was a serious thing. But I don't think we really understood at that time how seriously, how serious it was really going to be. And we had a wonderful two-day trip in South Carolina and had a chance to play golf with Zach for two days. We, we played in Keough Island. We talked about a, a lot of topics about, you know, responsibility and what he did and how he would go about it. And I, I think in this day and age, George, of young people in social media, whether it be Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, whatever it is, so much is out there. And I think sometimes that young people don't understand that like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff, that it's the same as standing at a post-game microphone. It's out there. And whether you think you're only reaching a certain, your followers or younger people, it's not the case. And I, I think it's a lesson that he needed to learn. He'll be better for it. And he felt, he felt terrible for what he did. You know, at the time he, he lashed out because he was probably embarrassed, humiliated, but I know that he, he understands that what he did was wrong. And I would be surprised if it happened again. You grew up in Crown Point, Indiana. Of course, he did as well. It's about, what, 50 miles from Chicago. Tell me what life was like then, because you were a pretty good athlete in more than one sport. Yeah, the, fun, the funny part, George, was um, I had signed a letter of intent. I was going to NC State University to play basketball. Um, senior year of high school, baseball coach at Crown Point High School, Dick Webb, his nickname is Curly, came up to me and said, hey, you know, I know you like playing first base in outfield. Why did you pitch? I go, oh. I go, Mr. Webb, I did that from like eighth grade 
I'm eight years old to like junior. And I'm like, I don't know. I go, I, I pitched so much in little league and senior league. I never, I, I never threw a game, George, after my freshman year in high school, I never pitched hitting. Sophomore, junior year, I played first base in outfield. So he convinced me to go ahead. Hey, we don't have any pitchers. We need somebody. I'm like, all right, I'll do it. One game turned into two, turned into 15 strikeouts, turned into 18, turned into a perfect game, turned into a no hitter. The next thing I know, like it's the middle of April, early May, and I'm pitching games at Crown Point High School, and there's like 50 scouts. Every team was there, guy sitting behind their screen with a radar gun, you know, holding those guns. The next thing you know, I'm the 42nd player taken in the draft by the St. Louis Cardinals. George, I don't know a thing about baseball. <laughs> I had no teaching. I had no schooling. I had no prep. I threw a fastball, and to this day, I laugh because I look at an article in the Post Tribune, which is the local paper in Northwest Indiana, and a writer asked me what my repertoire was. And I said, well, right now I throw a fastball and my off-speed pitch is a knuckleball. And I'm not kidding you. I was fastball, knuckleball. I got drafted. I was a 42nd player taken in the 1980 draft. I was offered 25 grand by the Cardinals. And I remember thinking, there's no way in hell I'm going to sign for 25 grand. That was a lot of money in 1980. So the first round pick, Don Collins, they told me, I had found out through an agent, that Don Collins signed for 55000 So Del Maxville was the general manager of the Cardinals. Eventually, getting into about the middle of July, calls me, Del Maxville called my parents and said, okay, listen, we're not fooling around. We want to get him signed. What will it take? And I said, uh, 55 grand and the incentive bonus, which is another $7,500. If you get the double A ball, you get 2000. You get the triple A, you get 2000. If you make the majors, you get another $3,500. So you make $7,500. So about a week before I'm going to roll at NC state, they call my bluff and Del Maxwell calls me and says, okay, kid, what will it take? I said, 55 in the incentive bonus. He says, deal. We'll have a guy there tomorrow. I'm about shit my pants, George. So I don't even know what I'm doing. I don't even like baseball. I can't say I don't like it. I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. I'm throwing fastball, knuckleball. I have no training in mechanics, pitching, delivery, anything. So the scout, Mo Mazzelli, drives from St. Louis to my house, and he knocks on the door, and my mom said, you've got to tell him, you know, I didn't sleep the night before. And I, and I told my mom, I'm like, I – I don't really know if I like baseball. Like, I don't know. This is for me. Like, Momazilli walked in the door with Del Maxwell. They sat at my kitchen table. They had a briefcase. They put the briefcase out. And Momazilli said, we're happy to have you in the organization. You seem a little disappointed. And I said, ah, it's not for me. I said, I, I don't even know what I'm doing. And he said, wait, wait, wait. Stop it. He goes, that's why we drafted you. You're not going to throw a knuckleball. We're going to teach you a curveball. We're going to teach you a changeup. We, we like the raw skills. We want you. You let us make you. You sign with us. We'll send you to Johnson City, Tennessee. You'll get started in your pro career. You have what you can't teach. You throw hard. You're left-handed. We'll put this piece of the puzzle together for you. And I just called him. And I just said, my, I can't. It's just, it's not the right time. And he was really disappointed. He walked out the door about an hour later. They tried to convince me to sign. Walked out the door, and he shook my hand, and he said to me, George, and I'll never forget this. He said, Dan, I wish you all the luck. 
but I don't know if you ever see $55,000 again the rest of your life. I hope you do, <laughs> but the chances are you won't. He left. I went to NC State. And I'll be honest, for the first two years at NC State, when I'm getting up in the morning at 8 o'clock going to class thinking, man, I could be playing pro ball right now. What the hell did I do this for? But I ended up, I rolled the dice, and I was drafted in the first round. I was a 26-player overall in the 1983 draft with Milwaukee, and I signed for 75 grand with Milwaukee three years later. You and I share a few things in common. One of them is harness racing. I remember the yes. very first time I saw a race. It's my sophomore year of high school when my late friend Ronnie Stroll and his dad took me to Washington Park. And if you remember, it had a long stretch. Well, I Longest knew nothing. Stretch. Oh, yeah. I knew nothing yes. about harness racing, but my friend said, Here, give me a buck and I'm going to bet a 17 to one shot. Dan, I remember the name of the horse to this day, Mary Kiwi, and it won. I was thrilled. Then in college, I covered the Hamiltonian where I would be around the barn for a whole week before the race, met guys like Stanley Dancer and Billy Houghton. You, on the other hand, became a trainer and have been so for decades. So tell me a story I don't know about your love for the sport, how you got into it, and how you're doing with it now. Love of the sport started with me when I was probably six years old. My grandfather had a farm in Crown Point, Indiana. I was born and raised in Gary. And the first horse, my dad, my, my grandfather, my uncle had a mare named Wingate Ann. And she was got hurt racing, didn't know what to do with her. And my dad said, do you mind if we work a deal out and we breed her? So they bred her. They bred her to a stallion named Samson Direct. And the little horse's name, it was a little colt, he was born. We didn't know what to name him. My brother, Ron, at the time, I was probably six or seven. My brother, Ron, was four or five. And he couldn't say horse. He called it hoey. So we went out to see this little colt. And my, my brother, Ron, would say, hey, look at that little baby hoey. So we named the horse Baby Hoey, H-O-E-Y. <laughs> and as it is with horse racing, usually the first one is the one that does well. And the horse bug bites. And when the horse bug bites, you are bit and bit for life. Baby Hoey was the beginning of a love affair that I've had with those animals since I was like five or six years old. And my whole goal was, while I was playing, is someday I wanted to train harness horses. And 1993, 94, after I signed with the Cubs, my grandfather was getting up in the years. And I told him, if you ever want to sell, I want to buy the property. And when my grandfather passed in 1995, I built a training track, two barns, and I retired in 2003. From 2003 to the day I flew out to New Jersey in 2009, I trained harness horses. And I can honestly tell you, it was without a doubt, the most fun I've had as an adult, like learning a new trade. Like I, you know, I owned horses forever. I mean, I owned horses when I was playing, I would say from 1989 to 1992, I probably owned between 25 and 30 horses every year. Had them racing in Toronto, Chicago, the Meadowlands, and in Pittsburgh. I had them all over the place. And when I retired in 03, I decided, okay, this is what I wanted to do. And I had more fun, George. I bought my first two yearlings at a, at a sale 
and it's now that the farm is no longer exists called Cottonwood Farm in Big Rock, Illinois. And I went to a sale and I bought two horses, two inexpensive yearlings. One of them uh, was named Dr. McStamey. The other one was unnamed and I changed his name to Ronnie Woo Woo. Yes, <laughs> after Ronnie Woo. So I bought these two horses and they were going to be my guinea pigs. They were going to be my start, right? Inexpensive. Dr. McStamey cost 5000 Ronnie Woo Woo cost four. Both of them made the races. Ronnie Woo Woo, December 26, 2007, made his debut as a two-year-old in a, in a maiden race at Balmoral Park. And I remember taking him in the truck and trailer and how many people that night in the paddock kept going, you know, Cubs, woo, Cubs, woo, Cubs, woo. <laughs> Ronnie Woo Woo was like the horse for the people, right? And everybody got a kick and they all knew that I played and all the Cub fans and people want to come and see what he looked like. George, he was about as big as a cell phone, but he was all heart. And his first race ever, he won at Belmoral Park. And it was one of the highlights. Like, just I had more fun with that horse. I just loved it. I end all of these interviews, Dan, with this final question. If not for baseball, if not for sports, what would you have been? I probably would have been a horse trainer and or teacher slash coach someplace. That's probably what I would have done. Would probably have... Let's just say it didn't work out. I went to NC State, got my degree, probably would have coached or done something in the equine business. But yeah, it's been a wonderful life. I, I, I don't know what I would do without baseball. I, I know this, the game's been good to me. And every day I pinch myself. And every day I think about standing next to that flagpole in 2016 and joining that with the Cubs and getting paid to do it. It's been a pretty wonderful ride. Thank you, Dan Plesak, for telling me a story I don't know. My thanks to Fox Sports, WGN Sports, ABC Sports, the MLB Network, and Zach Plesak for those wonderful highlights. And big thanks to TJ Reeves, who worked diligently behind the scenes to put this podcast on the map. Will Hatzel, whose deft editing makes this podcast sound a whole lot better. And T.T. Shinkin, whose graphics are an artistic delight. And thanks again to our sponsors, the Vienna Beef Company and the Polina Market for their generous support. Join me next time for another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. <laughs>